Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. Every day, a man used to walk by a jewelry store, and he would stop and set his watch by the big clock that was in the window. And one day, the jeweler happened to be standing in the doorway as the man walked by, and he greeted him very friendly and said, um, I see that you set your watch by my clock every day. What kind of work do you do that demands such precise timing? And he said, I'm the watchman at the plant down the street. My job is to blow the five o'clock whistle. The jeweler was very startled and said, but you can't do that. I set my clock by your whistle every day. So tell me, what's the dilemma in this story? Give me some feedback. What dilemma did you hear? Whose time is right? Anybody else? Ah, building error on top of error. Anybody else have an insight? Which one? What if they're both right? <laughs> That's an interesting thought. The, the dilemma is that there's a question. And the question is, what's the standard of reference? See, if, if, I, set, if I set my clock by another clock and that clock is wrong, then I had a bad standard of reference. Correct? And then if someone else sets their clock by, by mine, they have a bad standard of reference. And in this situation, there's no clear standard of reference. They're just kind of looking to one another and, and, and basing it on one another. So what does this word standard mean? That's what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to ask the question, what does the word standard mean? And I want to get some responses from you guys before I go into the message. What when I say the word standard, what do you think that word means? We use it commonly. Normal, okay? Anybody else? Baseline, okay? Anybody else? Acceptable. Okay. Average, okay? What's that? Manual, okay? All good input. And... When we talk about the word standard, we're talking about really a word that is used um, statistically a lot of times. It, it does mean normal or average. It, it's a, in statistics, the normal is, is the average. Now, now we, you hear people sometimes say normal is just a setting on a dryer uh, because <laughs> no one's really normal. But the idea normal is a statistical term that really means that it's average and, and it's based on whatever's going on in society. And it's kind of like the clock and the whistle. It's kind of like normal is determined by whatever people are doing and what people are aiming on is kind of determined on by what's normal. Right? There's kind of a circular logic to that. So we're going to look today at the word standard. Now the definition that, uh, of standard typically is something along these lines. It's a level of quality or an established measure of what is normal. A set of rules or requirements that are agreed upon. Today in American society, the standard is very different than it was a few generations back. Would you agree with that statement? 
And every one of us need to understand that we will pass on a legacy of some sort. The question is not if we will pass on a legacy, but what legacy will we leave? And it's a very important question. And so that's what we want to talk about today is this phrase, raising the standard. But before I start, I, I, want, to, I want to tell you, and just be very honest with you, that when, as I preach this message today, I'm preaching as much to myself as I am to anyone else. And not only that, but my heart has been incredibly burdened as I've tried to prepare for this. So much so that, that I, I couldn't keep my thoughts focused in the first service as I was trying to preach. And so I want you to join with me as I pray, and let's just ask God to make sure that what He wants said is what comes out. Because when it all comes down to it, the job that, that I have today and that Lynn has most Sundays up here in front of us is, is not to share what, what I think or what Lynn thinks, but to share what God says. And, and that is of utmost importance, and I don't want to be in the way of that. So... Um, I'm going to ask you to pray with me, and then we'll get started. Father, I come to you in humility this morning, recognizing how flawed I am and how, um, how unworthy I am to carry your message. And Father, we, we all are so undeserving of what you've done for us, and yet you love us with abundance. And you choose us and you call us and you command us to do great things and to step out in faith. Father, I'm asking you today that you would help me uh, to get out of the way and for each one of us that we would be able to remove ourself and our pride from the equation and that we'd be able to look squarely at what your word teaches and what you expect from us and help us, Lord, to live it and to walk it out, to respond to it in whatever way you would ask us to respond this morning. In Christ's name. There's a couple of questions we need to ask this morning. The first question is this. Who or what is setting the standard? Now, when we ask that question, what we need to realize is that in America today, there are more Christians than, professed Christians than in any other place on this earth. However, Christianity in America is on decline. And over the past 20 years, Christianity has declined by more than 10%. Actually, those statistics are, are about 10 years old at this point, so it's probably dropping faster based on the statistical information about um, years prior to that and, and the trends. As, uh, not only that, but... As we look at the stats of the 75% of Americans who consider themselves born again, only a small fraction of them believe that hell is a literal place. Now, there's a problem with that, and I'll tell you why. The problem is that Jesus preached on hell more than anyone else in Scripture. Jesus talked about hell more than anybody. Jesus referred to it as a literal place, and he warned people of it. Now, if... Only a small portion of those of us who call ourselves born-again Christians believe that hell is a real, literal place. Then, then those of us who say that it's not, which statistically some of you may be in that, that, in, in that persuasion, but those of us who say it's not, then are really saying that Jesus taught something that wasn't true. And if Jesus was teaching something that wasn't true, what else is in the Bible that isn't really true? 
And what else did Jesus teach that really isn't true? And if Jesus was teaching things that weren't truth, then what can we really believe about what Christ said about who he was? And what can we really believe about what the Bible says? And if all of that is the case, then what are we saved from? And why do we follow Christ if there is no hell? There's, there's, a, there's a problem with the logic. And so if you, if you don't believe in a literal hell, don't, don't take my word for it. I, I just encourage you to read the scriptures and, and ask yourself those questions. Because there, there is a logical problem there. And I think you see it, whether you agree with me or not, you'll see the problem. But only a small portion believe in hell. And then one Southern Baptist seminary professor said this a few years ago. He said, most of the first year seminary students at his own school could not name all 10 of the Ten Commandments. As a matter of fact, there are Protestant denominations today that can tell you the day that, or predict for you the day that their doors will close in, uh, because of the current rate of decline. As a matter of fact, there, I saw some stats this week as I was looking at research that actually broke it down into denominations. And, and the one that I remember right now is the first one on the list was that uh, while the church, church attendance in America in general has declined, by more than 10%, specifically uh, the Presbyterian denomination has dropped by about 24%. And then the next denomination listed was 18%. And so I, I don't rem- they all average out to more than 10%, but I, I don't remember specifically where Southern Baptists fell, but this is a Southern Baptist church if you didn't know it. And, and so the point is that there are some that are declining more rapidly than others, but they are on the decline. And they can predict for you the days that their doors will close. So the question in my mind is, what's happened to our spiritual heritage? Why is Christianity in America on the decline? And I believe that there's currently a lack of positive, effective leadership in the home and in the church. And specifically in, among our men. And specifically in the area of faith. And this, is, this is a real issue because today we live in a society that's a result of our own decisions... And our own priorities, both as a society and as individuals, we've made a lot of choices. This is actually a quote from a book called Choices. And it says, several decades ago, we made a decision not to listen to God anymore. We threw out scripture and rebelled against its authority. We determined that there are no absolutes, no timeless right or wrong. We concluded that right is whatever seems or feels right at the moment. And in so doing, we refused to acknowledge what the world has known for centuries, that the absence of morality is the presence of immorality. That free sex, free choice, and free thought are never free when they are set free from the moral law of God. So who's responsible then for passing on this standard? And the answer is, I think we all realize this, the answer is that we all are. We're all responsible, but specifically, it begins at home with parents. And as parents... As parents, we, we should understand that we ultimately will answer to God for how we've passed on the things of God to our children. Now, I, I have three small children. My oldest will be nine on Tuesday. And, and I don't take that lightly 
But even though I'm passionate about it and I don't take it lightly, there are many, many times that life gets in the way and clouds my thinking and keeps me from keeping a proper focus on that. And I believe that's the reason that God uh, wanted me to bring this to us all today to remind us of how important it is. And if you don't have children today, if you're not a parent, or maybe you're a grandparent, or maybe you're a teenager, or you could be in any stage of life, this still applies to you. Because those of us who belong to the body of Christ are all charged with this responsibility. It's an, it, it is a word that we've heard in church many, many, many times. And it's called discipleship. Discipleship. And that's really what we're getting at. But the responsibility lies on all of us. And specifically with parents. And unfortunately, for the most part, we haven't done a very good job in our homes or in our churches overall. The power of a parent is, is incredible. It's truly amazing. And specifically, the power of a father is even more incredible. Now, guys, we didn't get to choose this. We, I mean, I, I really wish sometimes that so much didn't rest on my example. Because it would be much easier. Because, let's face it, we're flawed. We're flawed. We mess up more than we'd like to admit. And we, we mess up more than we even realize. We never know how things are going to affect uh, people. And every one of us in here has a father story. I, I, I would put money on it. Everybody has a father story. Some way that your father's influence has shaped you significantly. And if I went around the room and I asked some of you to share those stories, I, I bet that they would all be powerful stories. Some of you in here would say, I am who I am today because of the example my dad set. I am who I am today because of the love that my dad showed me. I am who I am today because the man he was inspired me to be that kind of person. And some of you in here today would say, I am who I am today because of my father and I hate him for it. Some of us in here remember the times that he lifted us up and supported us when we most needed it. And some of us remember devastatingly how he let us down in our time of greatest need. The power of a father's words and a father's actions are tremendous. The word dad holds power, the power to create or destroy, the power to raise up or to put down, the power to motivate or to shame. And we need to understand that. The problem in our homes today and in our churches is that we lack three things. First of all, we lack a biblical worldview. Now, a biblical worldview, if you're not familiar with the terminology, is this idea that we have some sort of understanding of who God is and what He's already done in history and what He's told us in the Scripture that He's going to do. And, and we have our experiences in life uh, that we interpret through the, the filter of that lens. Our, our view and understanding of God and history. Did you know that both Yale and Harvard were originally founded to train young men for ministry by giving them a great education and grounding them in the Bible. I did not know that. Today, Yale and Harvard are not known for their biblical legacy. They're not known for investing in men the truth of God's Word. They are known for their political uh, involvement, 
How many of their graduates go on to politics and to legal professions? They're known for a great education. They're not known for biblical heritage or a kingdom impact. The second problem we have is a lack of understanding of the scriptures. The American household has at least three Bibles in it statistically. If you're in North Carolina, it's probably more like five. And unfortunately, most of them are sitting on the shelf collecting dust. And even as I prepared this week, in the midst of all the, the busyness of my family life and my, my church obligations and other work obligations, I've been convicted by the fact that there have been so few times that I've actually picked up and opened the Word of God for myself to connect with Him. And, and that's sad to say. But that's where we are today. And that's why I told you I'm not preaching to anybody else in here more than I'm preaching to myself. Did you know that 75% of the population in America believes that the Bible says, quote, God helps those who help themselves. 75% of Americans believe that is a verse in the Bible. I promise you it's not. And, and, and on a personal note, a family member of mine once told me that the Bible says cleanliness is next to godliness. That's not in the Bible either. Did you know that only 50% of Americans were able to name even one of the four Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You should be able to pass that test if you ever get quizzed on it. But only 50% of Americans could name even one. As a matter of fact, if you don't believe me, you can check these stats out yourself. 12% of adults believe that Noah's wife's name was Joan of Ark. I'm not making this up, people. I really am not. You can check out the research. Gallup polls, Barna Research Group, other organizations, there's plenty of it out there. A famous Yale theologian said one time, when I first arrived at Yale, even those who came from non-religious backgrounds knew the Bible better than most of those who now come from church-going families. If you study our founding fathers, you'll find that even, you know, there's a lot of debate today over whether or not certain ones were Christians or whether they were deists, which means they actually, they basically believed that there was a God who created everything and then he just kind of left it alone and he's not active in people's lives and, and they weren't necessarily Christian in their theology. And there's debate over which one, uh, some of these guys, whether or not they were deists or Christians. And here's why there's some of that debate. It's because even the ones who weren't Christians, who were deists, they were more well-grounded in their personal knowledge and study of scripture and theology than many of the people that, that attend church or even pastors in America today. It, it was just the biblical worldview was just part of how they had been shaped and formed. The third thing that we lack is a sense of our God-given purpose. We've taught people today that their purpose in life is whatever they decide it is. Whatever they want to pursue. And, and this is kind of how it goes in the American way. The American way is that we tell our kids, you need to get a good education. Well, why? Why is that so important? Because you're going to need a job. And you want to get a good job. 
Well, why? So you can make enough money to provide for your family. And buy all the things that you need and not have to struggle and suffer the way that your mom and I did or the way that your grandparents did. And we want you to have a good job so you can make enough money to get all the stuff you want and all the stuff you need. And, and, and so people grow up and they go into their careers and they, and they work jobs and they constantly try to pay off debt and make enough money to get all the stuff they not only need but want. And, and get themselves into credit card debt and student loans and car loans and home mortgages and everything else. And then, and then they struggle to keep their heads above water financially. And they encourage their kids, you need to get a good education. Because one day you're going to need a good job. So you can make good money. And so you can pay off all these bills you're going to have. And it's just a survival mode. It's cyclical. We, and we teach one another generation after generation that really, that's just, life is just kind of, going through the motions. And we, we don't think of it that way when we're going through it, but, but in reality, that's, that's kind of the limit of our view. As a matter of fact, we spend a lot of time, uh, we spend a lot of money going into debt for things we don't really need, that after we've got them, we decide we didn't really want to begin with, but we got them because we wanted to impress people that we didn't even really like. It, it, it's it's amazing the things that we do for acceptance. And so we are in a vicious cycle and we make up our own purpose as we go. People have no concept of who God created them to be, nor do they have a sense of the Lord's calling on their lives, which leaves them lost and wandering through the world, making up their own purpose as they go. But what's most concerning, though, is that the result of these three things over the course of many years is that the character of the church has now eroded with our society. And now, these have become the new standards. The new standards are lack of commitment. Anybody in here ever tried to get volunteers to staff ministry events? Anybody in here ever tried to get volunteers to staff community outreach events in Kiwanis or Rotary Club or Lions Club or any of those other things, service organizations? Anybody in here ever been charged with being the education director at a church before and having to get people listed to teach Sunday school every year? You remember those days? When, when you, you agreed because nobody else would do it, so you signed up and, and you meant to only do it for a year because that's all they asked. And then 10 years later, you realize you're still teaching the same Sunday school class and wondered what happened. You know, it, it's hard sometimes. People, there's a lack of commitment. And part of the reason there's a lack of commitment is that we have, we have a lack of commitment for the things of greatest importance because we have an abundance of commitment to the things of least importance. We have trouble saying no for various reasons. And so we say yes to all these other things and it, and it sucks the time out of life. And there's no margin for committing to the greater things. We need to put the greater things first. There's also a lack of motivation. There's a lack of discipline. Any of you who've ever made a New Year's resolution understand the idea of a lack of discipline. Discipline is hard. That's why we don't do it. That's why we don't like it. Hebrews says no discipline seems good at the time. We don't do it. And, and um, most of the good things in life are hard, aren't they? 
Raising children, hard or easy? Hard. Good or bad? Good. Work. You know, having a job, hard or easy? Hard. Hopefully. If you got an easy one, let me know. Um, Hard. Hard. Is it good or bad? Good. Evangelism. Hard or easy? Hard. Is it good or bad? Good. Marriage. Hard or easy? Hard. Is it good or bad? Good. The best things in life are the hardest things in life. Are they not? Would you agree with that? Yes. Okay. There's a lack of discipline, lack of patience also. All right, in, in Wilkes County where I live, we had a, a super Kmart that closed down. Walmart then bought the building and moved in and opened a super Walmart. And they've got like 30 lanes, 30 checkout aisles. When you go in there to check out, how many do you think are open? Two or three. That's it. That's it. And I get so mad when I go in there because you're always in a hurry and the store is enormous and you're like, I got to get milk and bread over here. I got to get toilet paper over there. I got to get shampoo over there. It's like the four corners of the earth in that store. And, and, and you think, I've got, to, I've got everything. I've, made, I, I've figured out my route. I went the quickest way to everything. I got it. I knew what I was getting ahead of time and I get to the line and there's 20 people there because there's two lanes open. And we get so impatient so impatient. Road rage. There's so many examples we could use. But we've let our culture set the standards for us and influence us to the point that we look no different as church people. We look no different than the lost world. And we as a church have been content for, for many generations now to let other people train up the next generation. Here's what I'm talking about. Now I'm going to tell you this. Before I get started, I want you to understand. I was a public school teacher for almost 10 years. My wife was a public school teacher for for about six years. I know great people in education, great people in our public schools, administrators, teachers, and I know very poor people in our public school systems. My wife and I chose to homeschool for many reasons. Number one was because God told us to, so that was it. It trumps the rest of them. Okay? But number two, as public school teachers, we saw things in the public school system that we just decided they didn't fit with our values. They didn't fit with what we wanted for our kids. Now, I'm, I don't condemn or judge anybody else who's doing it, and I'm not saying homeschooling is the only right way to do things. But what I am saying is this. As a public school teacher for almost 10 years, one thing I can tell you is that the greatest indicator of a child's academic su- success was their parental involvement. And the reason that it's the greatest indicator of their academic success is because it's the greatest indicator of their success in life in general. The more a parent is involved in that kid's life, the more successful they will be, whether they struggle academically or not. I taught a student one time that was was mentally... He would have been labeled as mentally retarded or mentally handicapped... His IQ was very, very low. And his mom worked in the school system. She refused to allow them to put him in special needs classes. And it was the best thing she ever did for him. 
She said, my son will learn to do it on his own. Because when he gets out of school, he's going to have to live. My son is going to be strong. And he's going to know how to survive. She didn't take any excuses. Her husband didn't take any excuses. They worked hard. He took some of the classes several times just to get a passing grade. He worked his rear end off. He was the hardest working student I ever saw. Do you think that boy is going to fail in life? He may not understand on the level that you and I understand. And it may not come as easy. But he will not fail. Do you know what he's doing right now? He's already gone through college at the community college. He's in Bible college right now. He won't fail. Yes. He won't fail. Because his parents have equipped him. Here's some, some, some information for you. Tell me whether or not you think this shows that we have lost our influence. Kids spend more time at school each week than they spend at home. True or false? True. Families rarely sit down to eat meals together or spend time with one another. True or false? True. There's more focus on getting a good job and making money than on the moral, emotional, and spiritual development of children today. True or false? True. Most teens seek advice from peers when they have problems rather than their parents. True or false? Parents don't know what goes on in their kids' daily lives. True. Drugs, violence, pornography, and crime continue to increase. True. Church attendance continues to go down even among professed Christians. True. Honor of mom and dad and obedience to their rules are no longer the centerpiece of the family unit. True. Kids and adults are both constantly being influenced by a never-ending barrage of filth and ungodly media images. True. Christians, we've lost our influence in the world today. You know why that media, those media images are allowed to be there? Because we watch them. We allow them to come in. I guarantee you, if Christians who claim to be born again and claim to love Jesus would stop going to the movies that, that portray the things that are contradictory to what we say we hold to, they'd stop making the movies. You know why? Because we'd hurt their pocketbooks. If we'd stop buying cable and satellite channels and all that stuff because the things that were on those channels were contrary to our, our personal convictions, we'd hurt their pocketbooks enough that they would stop putting it on there. The reason they do it is because we as a society consume it. Now that may not be you personally, but as a society it is true of us. I want to share with you something that, that, that chills me actually. This passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3 it shows that we've become just another vain religion with no power to change the world. That's not it. thought it was up there. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5 through 5 says this, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, 
lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Does that sound like the church today to you? It does to me. You know what the rest of that verse says? Brothers, have nothing to do with them. Now, I hope I'm wrong, but it seems to me at large that we look more like them than we do like Jesus. I'm pointing finger at myself. That resembles me more than I resemble Jesus. The question we have to ask, I think it's up there. I think I skipped it. Someone will train the next generation. Who will it be? And for what purpose? So my conviction is that today it's time for us as the church to raise the standard. So what is God's standard? God's standard in 1 Peter 1 verses 14 through 16 says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written... Be holy because I am holy. God's standard is holiness. God's standard is holiness. Now, how many of you can achieve that on your own? Would we all agree today that we need Christ in order to achieve that standard? God... God knows that. God knew that. That's why he sent Christ for us. So let's talk about this word standard for a moment. And let me explain to you where the word standard comes from in the Bible. In the Bible, in Numbers chapter 1, the Lord spoke to Moses after he had instructed them in the construction of the tabernacle. And, all, and, and then instructed them in all their religious observances. And he told Moses to take a census of the people. And then, once that was done, he told Moses how they were to set up their camp each time they traveled. Now, this is significant. The tabernacle was to be in the middle of the camp, first of all. And the Levites were to set up the camp all the way around the tabernacle. Here's a picture. There's a tabernacle in the center. Now, about a year ago, I did a message on, on, on worship, and we talked about the tabernacle a lot. If you were here for that, you might remember this picture. Uh, but there's a picture of the tabernacle in all the camps of, of the Israelites around it. The tabernacle went in the middle, and the tabernacle again represents who? Jesus. The tabernacle represents Jesus, God with us. The tabernacle was the dwelling place of God among men. All right, and the Levites were to set up their camp all the way around the tabernacle and oversee all the things that pertained to the tabernacle. Then on the other side of the Levite, of the Levite camp that was all the way around, there were four camps, north, south, east, and west. And here's a diagram. And there were, those four camps were each made up of three tribes, totaling the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, uh, each camp had a leading tribe, and, and each, camp, each uh, tribe had a banner. Numbers chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says this, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, I think the verse is up here, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, 
Whoops. No, it's not. The Israelites are to camp around the tent of meetings some distance from it, and each man under his standard with the banners of his family. Let me explain to you what that is. Every tribe had a banner, and that banner had certain colors and certain symbols on it, and that symbol actually correlated to the blessings of Jacob, who God changed his name to Israel, Jacob's blessings on his sons that became the 12 tribes. Okay, and Jacob's blessing... Uh, For example, to Judah, Jacob's blessing was, you are like a lion's cub whose prey is in his paws. And so what he's saying is your enemy's already been delivered into your hand. You're like a lion. And so the standard or the banner for the tribe of Judah was, what do you think? A lion. And in each camp, they had the, in each tribe, they all had their banners, but there was a leading tribe in each camp, and the, and the banner for that particular camp was known as the standard for the camp. So in, in the tribe of Judah, Judah was the leading tribe for the eastern camp, and his standard was a lion. The western camp, the leading tribe was Ephraim, and his standard was an ox. The southern tribe was led by the tribe of, I mean the southern camp was led by the tribe of Reuben and his standard was a man and the northern camp was led by the tribe of Dan his standard was an eagle. Now if you look back to Genesis and you'll see you'll see what I was talking about with the blessings from Jacob to his sons but not only that if you look in Ezekiel and Revelation at the prophetic scriptures what you'll see is this there's a discussion about something called the four living creatures that surrounded the throne who's sitting on the throne Jesus Jesus is sitting on the throne and the four living creatures the the prophetic scriptures tell us in Ezekiel and in Revelation the four living creatures each had the face they were they looked like human bodies but they had the face of an eagle, a lion, an ox, and a man. The same images that surrounded the tabernacle. And who does the tabernacle, tabernacle represent? Jesus. It's the same image. Isn't it amazing when we look in Scripture how God has laid all of this out for us? I mean, it's the same image. He shows us in the beginning at the tabernacle, the same, end, the same image He shows us in the end in Revelation. God has a plan. Not only that, but I want you to know that some scholars say that these camps were not set up circularly like this. They were actually set up linearly. So if you look at the northern and the southern camps, you'll see the numbers are pretty close. 157,000, 151,000. If you look at the eastern camp, it's 166,000, and the western camp is 108,000. There's a pretty good difference there. How many people do you think are in Caldwell County? Somebody give me a guess. 82,000, okay? That sounded very confident. I bet she's right. 82,000. 82,000 people. Do you know how many people were in this, this camp, the Israel, the, while they were wandering through the wilderness? 600,000 people. 600,000 people. Now, if you were to lay these out linearly like some of those scholars teach that it was laid out, what would it look like if you looked down from the air? A cross. Two sides being even, one, the other direction, one side shorter than the other. It would look like a cross. Amazing how God laid it all out for us. The standard for each camp served three primary purposes. 
Number one, it identified the camp you belonged to. It told you what your identity was. So if you belonged to the tribe, or, or if you belonged to a tribe who was in the camp of, of Judah, the, the, whichever camp that was, the eastern camp or whatever, then, then that lion represented your entire camp. It identified who you belonged to. The second thing it did is it served as a rally point for troops in battle. When the Israelites would go into battle, the standard would go before them. If the standard moved, they moved with it. If the standard retreated, they retreated with it. If the standard stood still, they stood still. Whatever the standard did, that was their marching orders. And when they were traveling in the desert, when they were wandering from point to point to set up camp, it was the same thing. And the third thing it did is it helped people to find their way back to their camp. With 600,000 people, don't you think you might need some direction? You know, every tent looks the same. Where, where am I? And, and I think that we, we can see the importance of the standard. But this standard also has spiritual significance for us today. So I want to ask a question. What does this mean for us? How do I raise the standard in my home? Starting with those in your own family and starting with those in this church, you and... And, and your sphere of influence without, outside of this place. We all have an obligation to raise a standard. After all, who do we represent? Jesus. Are we rep, do we want to represent him well or poorly? Well. Okay. So that's what we're going to talk about here. The first thing we want to do if we're going to raise a standard is we need to proclaim and pass on our identity. Proclaim and pass on your identity to your family. Here's what Psalm 78 says, verses 4 and 7. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget His deeds, but would keep His commands. Notice, did it say anything about convincing people? Does it say we need, we, we need to learn how to teach our kids why all the other religions are wrong? Does it say we need to, we need to teach our kids um, uh, uh, why it, it's, it's better to be a Christian than to be something else? Does it say we, we need to con- convince them that God wants them to, and if they don't do it, they're going to go to hell? Which, you know, without Christ we do, but that's... It says, we'll tell them what God has done. We'll tell them about His power. We'll tell them about all the, all the things He's done. We just Basically, all we're going to do is tell them who God is. And what are they going to do? They'll put their trust in Him. And they'll never forget. And they'll keep His commands. That's a pretty, that's pretty, pretty strong promise there. Is that, is that my responsibility to make sure that they put their trust in God and never forget and keep His commands? Or is that God's responsibility? It's God's. What's my responsibility according to that verse? To tell them. To tell them. This is how we establish a biblical worldview. And that's by proclaiming our identity. We need to hold up the standard and let them know who we are. The standard defines us. It tells the next generation what the Lord's done. And we talk to them about what the Lord's done in our life. We talk to them about, uh, about the fact that... You, have you ever noticed generation after generation we keep, tend to keep making the same mistakes? Do you realize also there's only two ways we learn? That's it. There's two ways. We learn from our mistakes. Right? 
and we le- or we learn from the mistakes of others. That's it. There's only two ways we learn. And, and the whole point uh, of education and, and, and uh, preaching and teaching and, and, and all those different avenues is that we try to help people to learn before they make the mistakes because somebody else has already made them. Unfortunately, what do we tend to pick? Making our own the hard way. That's what we choose. It's our human nature. It's our fallen bent. We choose the hard way. So here's the thing, parents. You know what I learned? I learned this not long ago. A few months ago, I was um, talking to my daughter. She'll be nine on Tuesday. I may have said that earlier. I can't remember. And uh, I was talking to her, and I, I, she did something that she shouldn't have done, but I responded to her in a bad way. And I lost my cool. And I went to her and I apologized to her. And I said, sweetie, I'm very sorry. I'm, I want to ask your forgiveness because I was wrong. And she said, you didn't do anything wrong. And I said, yes, I did. She said, well, what was it? And I told her and she said, but you don't ever do anything wrong. I figured if you did it, it, it couldn't be wrong. And I thought, I had no idea that that was her logic. I'm her dad. And she thought, if I did it, then I must have been completely justified and she must have been wrong. And I had to say, no, it was very wrong. And here's why it was wrong. And explain it to her and help her understand. And, you know, I didn't realize how much our children think that when they're, when they're small that we're superheroes. That we can do anything. You know, my dad can beat up your dad, you know, no matter what. Your dad's 350 pounds. My dad's 80 pounds when he's wet. He can still beat up your dad because he's the best. That's, you know, isn't that how little boys do? You know, it was amazing to me. And we have to tell our kids about our mistakes. We have to let them know, you know what? I wasn't always this way. And the reason, the reason I'm apologizing to you right now, or the reason I'm trying to tell you to make this kind of choice right now, or the reason that I'm hoping that you will do X, whatever it is, is because this is where I used to be. And this is what God has done in my life. And this is what I can tell you will be the consequence if you choose to do it in a way that's not God's way. And because I love you and because I have made mistakes, you need to know and understand that. It's not what your daddy or your mommy say is right that matters. It's what God says is right that matters. And we need to tell them that. Imagine how much farther you could have gone in life if you could go back and, and, and listen to the things that you were actually told and not make some of those mistakes. Wouldn't that be nice? We need to remind the, the next generation about the Red Sea moments, the times that God delivered us, and uh, pass that on to them, pass on their spiritual heritage. Um, this is not just passing on about passing on what he's done, though. This is about passing on who they are. Let me read this one to you. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. I told my kids... 
I told my, my oldest, I, I have a lot of examples with my oldest. She's the first. That's the one you make your mistakes with, right? Um, I told my oldest uh, years ago, I said, you're a princess. She's like, she said, I'm not a princess. You're not a king. I said, oh, yeah, I am. She said, no, you're not. I said, yeah, I am. I'm the king of this house. And, and, she's, and she laughed. She thought I was joking. Oh, daddy, you're not a king. And I said, yes, I am. And I took her to this verse. I said, I said, you see that? God says, I'm royalty. And if I'm royalty and you are my daughter, then you are a princess. You know what? Every one of you ladies in here, you're a princess. Every one of you men in here, you're a son of the king. That is your identity. That is your identity. We need to pass that on to him. He's brought us out of darkness into marvelous light. Show him your work in progress. 1 John 3, 1 through 3 says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. God is so good. We need to pass on a biblical worldview by, by holding up the standard and showing them their, their identity in Christ. The second thing we need to do is we need to prepare them for the battles that are ahead. The second function of the standard was to prepare uh, the troops and give them a, a rallying point for battle. They knew their marching orders by the standard. As I told you before, when the standard advanced in battle, they went forward. When it stayed still, they stayed and fought. If it retreated, they retreated. The Apostle Paul communicated the same idea to Timothy, who was a young pastor. And he said, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you, that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Paul is talking to Timothy about the concept of preparing other men for the battle. Preparing, not only preparing other men, but preparing men who will prepare others. Moms and dads, grandparents, teenagers, that, that's what we're called to do. We're called, number one, to be prepared for the battle. Number two, to prepare others that we have opportunity to prepare. And if you're a parent or a grandparent, that's your job. It is our job to prepare the next generation. We have something valuable to entrust to them, okay? And, and, the unfortunate problem today is that we as church people, we are content to allow other people to pass these things, pass on their values to our kids. I can tell you, I'm very thankful for youth ministry and children's ministry and things like that. I, um, I didn't grow up in church. And I'm here today because of the influence of a couple of key, really more than two, but there's two people that I really, that, that, um, Caused me to weep when I think about him. One was a youth pastor, a new youth pastor in the community who loved me enough to just be there and be like a father figure. And the other is a lady who was about 80 years old. When I was 15, a friend of mine invited me to a Bible study. I went there. It was in the attic of this woman's house. She was in her late 70s. And for the next three and a half to four years, that woman discipled me. What no one knew when those two people, the uh, youth pastor and this lady, elderly lady that we all called Aunt Sarah, what nobody knew during that time was that I was suicidal. 
I was lost. And I was headed for hell and I was ready to send myself there. Nobody knew. But God used a woman who was almost 80 years old in my life. And for that reason, I'm standing here today. And I often think that if it weren't for her, and if it weren't for Tony, the youth pastor, that I, I wouldn't be in ministry, and quite honestly, I might not be alive. You're never too old. If you don't have children or grandchildren, this message is still for you. Because God has put people around you that you have the opportunity to influence. I wasn't the only one that she discipled. Was it the only one she poured her life into? I'll tell you this, she made me feel like I was. When I walked in, there was nobody else in the room. Even on her deathbed. My wife and I went, went to visit her when she was dying. She was in the hospital. Um, and they told us, you can go in and see her, but don't try to talk to her because she's had a lot of visitors and she can't talk. And um, she needs to rest. And not only that, but just so you know, if you engage her, you're probably going to get your feelings hurt because she doesn't remember people when she's talking to them and she can't see them very well. So we went in and I just sat by the bed and cried and held her hand. And she woke up and looked at me and got the brightest expression on her face and smiled and she called my name first and last and she remembered my wife's name she said I love you I am so glad to see you come here and let me give you a kiss <laughs> you're never too young either my daughter, when she was six, the kids were playing at Chick-fil-A and they were playing in the tunnel, you know, the, the children's playground. And um, she came out and told me that, that she had met this boy in the, in the playground and they were talking and, and that he didn't know who Jesus was. And I said, well, what did you do? And she looked at me very strangely, like as if to say, duh. She said, well, I told him about Jesus. And I thought, you know, I never tried to train a six-year-old to be an evangelist. I, I, never, I never told her that was her job. But Jesus had always been a part of our home from the time she was born. And, and it was just, just kind of what she did. She didn't know why you wouldn't. Somebody doesn't know about Jesus. Well, they need to know. So it's my job to tell them because I know. And that was just kind of her mentality. You're never too old. You're never too young. And... Um, you have an opportunity to help prepare the next generation. Um, invest in other people. This addra addresses our, our um, lack of understanding of the Scriptures. We need to see the Word of God as the most important preparation for the battles we face. 
want to read to you this passage, Ephesians 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Let me, let me give you, let me give you a, 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 an understanding of what this passage said. It's worded uh, differently in a few different translations. But the Bible tells us that our, pa- that our battles are spiritual in nature. And we need to be prepared to fight them spiritually. So our primary weapon is the Word of God, which is called the sword of the Spirit in, in reference to this passage. And, but there's also other weapons like truth, peace, righteousness, faith, and salvation. Now they're defensive weapons. It talks about the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of peace. And the Bible says we need to keep all of those in our lives continually so that once we've done all that we can do to stand, that we can still keep standing. Here's the image. The image is that of a warrior in battle who's been fighting the fight as hard as he can. He's done everything he can do. And he's beaten and he's bloody and he's exhausted and he is about to collapse. But because of the support of his armor, because of the protection of his armor, that when he doesn't have the strength to stand, his armor keeps him up. And it looks to the enemy like he can't be stopped. And this is the command that Paul gives us, is that we need to understand this is a spiritual struggle. So we need to keep the full armor of God on so that once we have exhausted all of our energies and all of our resources, and we've done everything we can do in our own selves, that we're still able to stand because of the work of God in our lives. That's the kind of preparation that our young men and women need. The last function of the standard was, was to direct the way home. So we need to point the way home. Point the way home. We need to continually point the way back to God. First Timothy 4 says, Set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Paul was talking to Timothy, a young pastor, and right before this statement, he says, as a matter of fact, he says, Don't let them look down on you because you're young. Set the example for all of them, young and old and everywhere in between. Teenagers, college students, young adults, let me say this to you today. So many of of us feel like and have felt like in life that there were things we knew needed to be different, but we didn't have a model Adults, there are many of you probably feel that way today. I feel that way when I think about this stuff and I go, God, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do those things. I don't know how to do that in my home the way that it ought to be done. I don't have that model. I've never seen it done that way. How do I do it? If I could see it, I could reproduce it. But I've never seen it. What do I do? And Paul's saying, if you don't have the example, be the example. I read a quote last night that said something like this. Don't take the path that's least traveled. Look where there is no path and make a path. And that's what I'm saying to you. If you don't have an example, make the path. Be the example. Our job is to set the example for those who already believe. You can't win the race unless you run the race. And... Even if you pass the finish line, if you didn't follow the rules, you get disqualified. Isn't that right? 
The idea is that we need to set the example for our families in the area of obedience. We're not going to be perfect, but we need to continually point them in the right direction by showing them how to handle it when we fall short. And trust me, we all fall short. Show them how to make it right with God and other people when you do. And show them how to never stop growing. Matthew 5.16 says this, In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. We need to demonstrate also, not just to those in our home, but those outside of the camp. Those outside of the camp of faith. Those who are not believers in Christ. Our walk and how we live is just as much a witness to them as anything else we could ever say. More. And they need to be able to look at us and see our example and praise God as a result. You know when there's a quartet singing, anybody ever watch Southern Gospel Quartets? You ever notice how if there's somebody singing a solo, there's somebody singing a solo, everybody drops their mic and they look at that person that's singing the solo. They're trained to do that. It's intentional. And the reason they're trained to do that is because they know that if, if I'm in the group and I'm not singing the solo at that moment and I'm looking over here somewhere and then the person on the other side is looking up, up there and somebody else is looking down at their shoes or picking their fingernails or whatever they're doing, your attention is not going to be drawn to the person who's most important at that moment. Because they want you to know he's getting ready to sing a super high note or this super low note, and, and they want you to be impressed. They want you to know what's going on right there. And so if you're looking somewhere else, you're going to take the attention off of what's most important at that moment in the song. So they put their attention on that person so that you'll do the same. You know what? That is the best example that I know of, of what we need to do with our kids and with those who are watching us. Because if we will make sure that we continue to look at the one who's most important, which is who, by the way? Jesus. If we continue to be looking at the one who's most important, then we may, we may go a few steps in the wrong direction this way. But if we're still... We're still looking towards the one that's most important, and we're still aiming for that. That's what they're going to be drawn to. Does that make sense? It's kind of like a spiritual GPS. What happens if you miss your turn on the GPS? What does it say? Recalculating, right? It's, oh, missed a turn. You'll get there. Take the next one. Oh, miss that turn. You'll get there. Take, and, you, and you may go two hours out of your way if you keep going against that GPS. But if your eyes are set on the destination, if that's really your intention, eventually you'll get there. Right? Right? That's, that's the idea. So we've, we need to point the way. A little less than uh, 2,000 years ago, God did that very thing. And I, I want to say this to you, you know, we're not perfect people, and it's easy to fail, and it's easy to get distracted, and, and it's easy to work yourself hard trying to do all the good things, and things not end up the way that you want them to or the way you expected them to, because the hardest stuff is the best stuff. Would we all agree that God the Father is perfect? Okay. And the children of Israel were God's children. So if God is a father and he's perfect, then he's a perfect father. Would we agree with that? How many times did his children go astray? Huh. 
all the time, right? So let me ask you a question. Why is it that Christian parents who have their eyes set on God think somehow that this sinful human being that's fallen and flawed and this sinful being that's fallen and flawed are going to come together and they're going to have children and they're going to raise his children up who are fallen and flawed to be perfect. Or that they're going to come together and that they're going to be able to set a perfect example. Is that logical? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Let me tell you this. Your job, my job, is not the results. Our job is obedience. What did that passage in the Psalms say? What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to be responsible for them coming to the Lord? No. We're supposed to tell them. Jesus said this. No man comes to John 14, 6, I think. John, uh, uh, John 14, 6. Jesus said, no man comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. It is God's job to take care of the results. It is our job to be obedient. About 2,000 years ago, God raised a standard. It was a sign that was lifted high up on a hill for all the world to see. And since that day, it has never ceased to show the world the true identity of God. It's a continual call to arms for those who would fight for God's cause. And it's a beacon of hope showing the way home all who are lost and separated from him. This is what Jesus said in John 12. Up there he said, but when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. It's time to raise the standard. I want you to bow your heads with me for a moment. I know we're past time, and I haven't mean, meant to go long, but I can tell you that this has been heavy on my heart this week. And I think that it's something that we as a church um, often are not willing to look at honestly. And what I want to say to you today is this. If you are in here and you don't know Christ and you're looking for the way home, today's the day you can go home. And the Father's waiting. And if today you'd like to know how you can know Christ, if you just raise your hand, I want to pray with you. You've never accepted Christ. You're not sure about your salvation. Today, if maybe you're a believer and, um, and God's dealing with you in, uh, over ways that, um, ways that He wants you to live this out that you're not, maybe you need some time just to confess to Him and to get, allow your GPS to recalculate. The Holy Spirit can direct you in the right in the right way. 
Jill's going to sing a song. And I want to invite you, if, if, if that's you, you can come up to the front and pray. If you need to talk to somebody about salvation, you can come up and, and, and meet with, with me or one of our other leaders here. But now's the time for you to respond in whatever way that God may be directing you. I said about anybody else but you and him. You and you alone know what he's saying to you today. So I just invite you to come. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church. Experience a new day in your life.